Good morning once again. If you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. We're going to be again looking at the Christmas story this morning. As you're turning there, didn't those guys do a great job this morning? They just really worked hard on that. And We're going to see a different uh, drama each week, uh, putting parts of the Christmas story together over the next four weeks. And this will be a great opportunity for you uh, as a church to, to invite someone to come. As you leave the church this morning, we're going to have some little uh, business card size invites that we want to encourage you to give out. And uh, so we will, we will be sure to uh, get those to you as you walk out the door today. Be thinking about somebody that you can invite. This is one of those seasons of the year when folks are, are more apt to, uh, to receive an invitation to come to church. And we're going to be very gospel-centered during this season as we look at the Christmas story, the very beginning of, of the gospel as, as the Savior comes into the world. So today we're going to begin this new series uh, called Our Coming Savior. We're going to be walking through the birth story in the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to be in Luke 1, 5 through 25. And the title of today's message is, What's in a Name? That, that skit ended so perfectly at the point of, of really what the revelation was to Zachariah and Elizabeth. This, this strange name was interjected into the life of their family. If you grew up as a Hebrew in those days, it was very normal for there to be a very small number of names that a child uh, would be, that the parents would pick from for their child. And oftentimes those names would be passed down from generation generation. And so the expectation was, the expectation was that when Elizabeth became pregnant, the first thought was, well, we'll name this boy Zachariah after his father. That would have been the normal thing to do. But God had something different in mind. And as we look at these scriptures this morning, I hope you'll see what it is and how it relates to the gospel. So if you are able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as we read? Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The scriptures say, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before, the, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And you may be seated this morning. Father, as we walk through these scriptures today, the birth of your son put on display in these early chapters of Luke. And today as we look at the promise of his forerunner, the one that would go before him to prepare the way for him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand the beauty and the majesty and even some of the mystery of your great plan to save the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Speaking about this chapter, John Calvin said that Luke very properly begins his gospel with John the Baptist, just as a person who was going to speak about the daylight would commence with the dawn. You see, it had been 400 long years since God had spoken to his people. In your Bibles there, just to the left of the New Testament, you find this little prophet named Malachi. And in Malachi, he gives the last Old Testament prophecy. And we'll see the very end of the book of Malachi before we finish today because he, he speaks about this one we're going to look at today that we know as John the Baptist, or all, sometimes known as John the Baptizer, this this wild man who spent most of his days living out in the wilderness and people would go out to him to hear his preaching. They would go out to him to be baptized. They would go out to him because there was something that God was doing in that day that he had not done for 400 years. God was doing a new thing and people were drawn to what God was doing. The dawn had come on a very dark period in the history of God's people. And so let's walk through these scriptures today. And the way I want to do this today is I want to bring out these three names, these three characters that we see demonstrated here, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. And I want you to see how the meaning of their names encapsulates the purpose of these scriptures. In the scriptures, every name is very, very important. In fact, when you see God changing someone's name, you see that something really important is happening. When, when, the, when Abram becomes Abraham, God was doing a new thing. 
when Jacob became known as Israel, God was doing a new thing. And now this little baby that was conceived in the womb of Elizabeth, who everyone thought would be named after his father Zechariah, but God changes that name to John because God was doing a new and important work in preparing the way for his son to come into the world. Let's begin with Zechariah this morning. Zechariah's name literally means God remembers. This is a powerful name. There were many priests throughout the Old Testament that were named Zechariah. It was a name that was cast down through this priestly line. And we find here in these scriptures that not only was Zechariah of the priestly line, but also his wife Elizabeth was. And so they were both considered to be highly honored, coming down through this line of the priests, serving in the temple, leading God's people in worship. And it also goes on to say about them that they were righteous. Look at verse 6. They were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all His commandments and statutes. What we would say in our day and age is these were were some good folks. These were some good folks here who loved God and loved His people. But then we come to verse 7 and we find that there was a reproach upon their lives. For they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. As we walk through these scriptures, you see that a promise was given to Zechariah. A promise that God had made all the way back in the book of Malachi. And even before that, in the book of Isaiah, God had been promising that someone was going to come, a forerunner of the Messiah. Someone was going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. For the long-awaited Messiah, there was going to be someone who was going to come that was going to be the signal that the Messiah is about to be here. He was pulling back the curtain so that they might see the king. And he said, the time is now. He's going to come to you, Zechariah. God has remembered his people. He is bringing his promise to bear through you and your wife. But there was a problem. You see, while Zechariah's name means God remembers Zechariah had forgotten some very important things. He had totally forgotten, apparently, what God did for Abraham and Elkanah, two of his ancestors. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, and you, you find the Lord calls this man, who's then known as Abram, out of the land of Ur, and he says to Abram, I'm going I'm to take you and I'm going to give you a land, Abram. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bring many descendants from you, Abram, and I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and you're gonna, I'm going to do great things through you and your descendants. And the Bible says that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it was not long before God changed his name to what we know today as Abraham. God changed his name signaling that God was doing something new and spectacular. And part of that spectacular work was at the age of 75, God promised Abraham, who he and his wife Sarah were also barren, you're going to have a son. And it was 25 years until God kept that promise. At the ripe old age of 100 years old, Abraham and his wife Sarah welcomed into the world this son known as Isaac. God kept his promise. And even in his old age, well beyond childbearing years, God kept that promise. 
We fast forward a few hundred years and you meet a man named Elkanah who has two wives. Not that the Bible commends that, but it was something that was happening during those days. He had two wives and one of them had had children with the other one. Hannah, it says the wife that he loved, Hannah, had been unable to have children. And she had pleaded with the Lord year after year. You can read about her in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She had pleaded year after year as they would go up to the temple to worship God. God, please give me a son. God, please give me a son. She had pleaded. She had wept. She had known the pain of infertility that so many experience. And in the midst of those days, as she was praying at the temple one particular year, she made a promise to God. God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you to serve you all the days of his life. And God heard her and answered that prayer And the next year, she bore a young man that we know as Samuel. A man that was used powerfully in the Old Testament in a new work that God was doing, preparing the way for a king to reign over Israel. Just as Samuel prepared the way for the king, so the son of Zechariah, this one that would be called John, was preparing the way for the king to come. He was coming as the forerunner, preparing the way. But Zechariah had forgot his Old Testament history. He had forgot what God had already done in the past. And because he had forgotten, he received some retribution. Look there at that third paragraph. And it says, as the angel finishes speaking, Zechariah says to him in verse 18, So how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I love the way he says that, by the way. I'm an old man, but my wife is, it sounds so much nicer to say, she is advanced. She is advanced in years. Husbands, we can learn a lot from Zachariah here, uh, unless you want to sleep on the couch. But the, the point here is, we're way beyond this point. How will I know this? And what he's basically saying is, God, give me a sign. Prove it to me. And of course, the angel says to him in response, Understand this, my name is Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to bring you good news. And since you wouldn't receive it as good news, guess what? That very tongue that just spoke a word of disbelief before God will be mute for the nine months to come until she brings this boy into the world. You see, his silence became the sign of God's promise. How will I know this, Zechariah said. And in that moment, God made his tongue still for the next nine months that he might see his silence as an answer to that request for a sign. We don't need to see Zechariah's punishment here as a punitive punishment, but God was teaching him a lesson. And Zechariah himself was representing the fact that for 400 years, God had been silent. And God was getting ready to speak in a way he had not for generations. God was getting ready to do a new thing as John the Baptist was going to be born into the world. And then right behind him was going to come Jesus into the world. who was going to bring for the first time in generations a word, a fresh word from God. Zechariah's silence became a sign of the promise of God. God is always faithful to his word. And we see here something that I wanted to point out to you. And if you look at verse 
34. We're not going to come to this scripture next week, and I won't touch on it too much. Uh, Kent's going to be walking us through this one. But Mary asks a particular question that sounds a lot like what Zachariah, same kind of situation. The angel Gabriel comes, says, you're getting ready to have a son. And Mary says in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, one of the questions I asked this week was, well, how come she didn't get to be quiet for nine months? I mean, it's almost the same question. It sounds like the same question. Zachariah says, how will I know this? And he gets to be mute for nine months. Mary says, how will this be? And she gets a blessing from the angel in the next paragraph. You see, here's the difference, though. Zachariah asked his question in unbelief while Mary asked her question in faith. Church, I want you to hear this. Some of you in this room need to hear this this morning. It is not wrong to question God. It's not wrong to question your faith. It's not wrong to have struggles and to have a difficulty grasping the things of God, even things that He has revealed to you in the Scriptures. It's not wrong to question God, but there's two ways that we might question Him. There are two attitudes behind our questioning that determine whether we will receive a blessing of God for those questions or whether we'll receive some judgment from God for those questions. If you're asking those questions out of an attitude of faith, as I believe Mary was, then God will bless you. God will bless that. Now, he may not answer every question that you have. That is not his duty to do so. God does not owe us an answer to all of our questions. In fact, oftentimes I believe God leaves us without those answers so that we would trust him more. But I want to encourage you, question God, but do so in faith, trusting that he will fulfill his promises. God had been promising for hundreds of years that this forerunner was going to come that was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. God was going to keep His word. But when Zechariah questioned that word, he was questioning it in unbelief. That's what the angel noticed in his tone. That's what the angel noticed in the way he asked the question. And for that, he got to spend nine months in silence. You see, here's the truth. The gospel requires a response of faith. In that moment, Zechariah was speaking out against the very thing that was going to enact salvation in the world. The gospel requires a response of faith. Some people would ask, well, what in the world does the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross have to do with me? That is not a bad question, by the way. That's not a bad question. In fact, it's a question that I hope every person in this room will go home and wrestle with a little bit, whether you grew up in church or not, whether this is your first time here or your hundredth time here. I want to encourage you to think on that question, but I want to encourage you to ask that question in faith. God, show me from the Scriptures what Jesus of Nazareth has to do with my life. And I believe as you look through the Scriptures, begin to read in the book of John, you'll begin to see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus of Nazareth did not get His beginning in the stable in Bethlehem. Yes, He was born in a barn, but that was not His beginning. He is the eternal God through whom all things were created. Nothing was made apart from Him. All things were made through Him and by Him and for His glory. As you begin to question God by faith, you begin to see that faith strengthen. That's part of my own testimony. I spent three years in college deeply questioning my faith 
to the point at times wondering if I would walk away from biblical faith altogether. But God began to build into me a stronger faith than I had ever had. So once again, I encourage you, question God, but do it in faith, not in unbelief. You see, one of the we got it right, he said, instead of looking to God by faith, this priest looked at himself and his wife, and he decided that the birth of a son was impossible. Folks, we have a God who does the impossible, and God does not accept unbelief. God does not accept unbelief. Faith is the pathway through which God works among his people. And he was calling Zechariah to faith, just as he does for us. And so how do we respond then? Look at Psalm 77, and it says this. This prayer, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. What I would say to Zacharias, man, if you had just remembered what God had already done, if you look back to Genesis 12, you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, God had already done miracles exactly like what he was getting ready to do in your life. This is the, the difference between Zachariah and Mary. In Mary's case, God was getting ready to do something he had never done before. If a 16-year-old girl comes to you and says that she's pregnant, most of us understand how that works. And if you don't, go home and ask your mom or dad and, and tell them the preacher told you to. And we'll figure that out. But that's, most of us don't go, man, I bet it was the Holy Spirit that did that. No, you know how that happens in the life of a young lady. And but yet God was doing something with Mary he had never done before. And Mary believed God for something he had never done when this old priest, Zachariah, would not believe God for something he had already done times before. Do you see what I'm talking about here this morning? What I'm really saying is this faith is a gift of God. This little 16-year-old girl had a gift of faith from God to believe something that had never happened in the history of the world and never would happen again. And yet it was true because God said it. Let's go to Elizabeth this morning. We talked about Zechariah, now let's talk about Elizabeth. Elizabeth's name means God is my oath, and her name is a reminder that God keeps his promises. Her name is a reminder that God keeps his promises. And so as Elizabeth here, she hears from her husband, Zechariah, that she is going to experience the blessing of some ladies who had gone before her of Sarah and of Hannah, the wives of Abraham and Elkanah. She was going to experience that same kind of a blessing. And unlike her husband, we get the impression here that she believed, perhaps because of her husband's silence, perhaps because of the sign of the promise, she believed. You see, Elizabeth had struggled for many, many years with this thing that we call infertility, barrenness. In that particular culture, there was something about infertility that goes above and beyond how it's experienced in our culture. And Kent Hughes described it well. He said, in any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. And for some, it's an almost unbearable stress. Some of you have walked through those days. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by childless women in ancient Hebrew culture because barrenness was considered then a disgrace, even a punishment. 
You see, folks would look at Elizabeth and Zechariah and see these two folks who looked to be wonderfully righteous people serving God in the temple, these two pillars of the community, and yet they saw them without children. And the immediate thought in that culture that entered into the, the minds of those who saw them would be, I wonder what they did that God has left them without children. It's like the man that Jesus came to several years later who had been born blind, and the disciples came to Jesus and said, what did this man, what did this man do or what did his parents do that he was born blind? He said they looked at his condition and they assumed that it was a punishment for something that either he had done or his parents had done. And Jesus said, that's not the case at all. He was born this way so that the glory of God might be revealed through his life. And in that very moment, Jesus gave that man sight. And the same thing is happening here. Elizabeth had been barren all those years, and just like Hannah who had gone before, she had gone to the temple year after year praying and pleading with God to give her a son, to take away her shame, to take away her reproach, to take away that sideways glance that she would get when she went out into the marketplace and did not have any children with her, to take away those sideways glances that the women in her knitting circle would have when she would come together to meet with them, to take away her shame and her reproach. And God was faithful. But you see, her infertility was was a symbol of Israel's spiritual barrenness. For 400 years, God had not spoken to his people. John the Baptist was born into a day when there was great spiritual barrenness. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire during those days. They had almost forgotten what it was to be the people of God and to enjoy their identity as God's chosen people. And in the midst of that time of spiritual infertility, God brings John the Baptist into the world according to his promises. He's a reminder that the the gospel says that God removes our reproach. You see, here's the truth, folks. You were born into this world spiritually barren in fact it's even worse than that in ephesians 2 it says you were born into this world spiritually dead and there was nothing that you could do about that the wages of sin is death and sin in your life caused spiritual death from the very beginning you were born in sin and then you chose to sin it was a double-edged sword that brought death into your life and there was nothing you could do about that just like there was nothing that elizabeth could do about her barrenness Month after month, year after year, wrestling and struggling with her own physical infertility. There are some here in this room today who for years you have wrestled with the knowledge that your sin is weighing you down and killing you. And yet the message of the gospel this morning is there is hope for the sinner. Just as there was hope for this infertile woman who was well beyond childbearing years, the God of the universe was going to step in and do something miraculous in her life. That same God wants to do that in your life. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, hear the word of the gospel. Jesus came. His name means God saves. And He came to save you from spiritual barrenness. He came to save you from an infertility that would lead you to an eternity in hell apart from him he came to work a miracle in your life 
The gospel reminds us that God removes our reproach, removes our sin and our shame. I love Psalm 113. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. And if you don't think that there was praise in the Lord going on, when Elizabeth finally was able to announce her pregnancy, you're missing the point of the picture here. There will be great joy, the angel said. Good news is happening here. You will rejoice and others will rejoice with you. Just as we rejoice with Audrey this morning in her baptism, there was a similar picture going on in this moment. Finally, let's look at the son of the promise this morning. Let's look at John. The name John means God is gracious. God is gracious. God was getting ready to inject his grace into this spiritually barren world. He was getting ready to demonstrate his unmerited favor to those who had not heard him speak for 400 years. John grew up, and he was kind of a strange character. He wore some odd clothes, and he ate some weird stuff. We could talk about that at a different time. You can go and see him later on in the, in the book of Luke and, and in the other Gospels. But two things I want to say about John this morning that are good reminders for us. First of all, he went out ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. The angel said, even, even before he's born, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, God was doing something unusual here. In the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit came and went in the lives of God's people. And what God was getting ready to do as a result of the gospel, as a result of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, is that the Holy Spirit was going to come, was going to indwell the people of God, was going to live inside of the people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. God was going to come and dwell not just among us as Jesus did, but within us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And John was paving the way for that ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about John in Matthew chapter 11. And he says, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? The third time he asked that question. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before the prophet Isaiah said these words. Behold, pay attention, listen up. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus said about his cousin John, there's been no one born in the natural way greater than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus was born in a very unnatural way. He's saying there's been no one born greater than John the Baptist, and yet the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least of those who put their faith in me, the least of those who walk with me by faith, the least of those who are, who are saved by my blood poured out at the cross, the least of those in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. There's some amazing things there for the church. If you'll take that in for a moment and see your position before Almighty God in light of these scriptures, you will understand how much God loves you and how much He has empowered you for in your life. Let's talk about John's message for a minute. John went out preaching in the wilderness and his message was basically a call to repentance. 
following in the lines of the Old Testament prophets before him, John went out calling the people to repentance. Turn from your sins and trust in the one who is coming, John proclaimed. There's one coming after me. I'm not even going to be fit to untie his sandals. I'm not going to be fit to do anything in relation to him. He's coming. He's going to be here soon. Prepare yourselves. As Grant was talking about a few minutes ago, it's, it's time for us, church, to be ready for his coming. His first coming has already occurred. He came to bring salvation into the world. The next time he comes, he will come with judgment. He will come as the rightful king on a white horse. He will come in power and majesty and glory. He is coming again. Are we ready for that? You say, well, how do I get ready? You walk in the way of his gospel, which is the way of repentance and faith. Turning from sin and trusting in Christ. You say, well, that's how I came to Jesus. Yeah, and the Bible says in the same way you came to Him, so walk in that. Continue in that way. Continue to walk the path of repentance and faith. Turning from sin and trusting in Christ day by day. And seeing His power at work in your life. See, the truth of the gospel is this. The gospel, the reward is received by God's grace. John's name, God is gracious. God will do for you what you could never do for yourself if you will trust Him. God will take away the reproach of your sin if you will trust Him. God will remove from you all your shame if you will trust Him. God will take the burden of your life from you and give you His burden, which is easy, and His load, which is light, if you will trust Him. These scriptures from the very beginning of Luke chapter 1, they're calling us to faith in the God who stepped into the universe, stepped into the world in these days after 400 years of silence and was doing a new work. Will you allow him to do a new work in your life during this Christmas season? Let's end it here this morning. Book of Malachi. The last chapters of the Old Testament, these words are found. Behold, there it is again. Listen up, pay attention. Something important is happening. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before you. The forerunner is coming. He is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. I will send you Elijah the prophet. Just like Elijah went and proclaimed a message of repentance, turn from your sin and trust in God. So John went out proclaiming the same kind of message I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then in a little cave-like stable outside of a lowly place called Bethlehem that nobody had ever heard of any more than they've heard of McQuady, Kentucky. The God of the universe stepped into the world as a baby and was not wrapped in the nicest clothes from Carter's but wrapped in rags was not laid in the nice cradle from babies are us, but was laid in a feeding trough because there was no room for him anywhere else. The question of the gospel for us today, church, is this. Will you make room for him? He is coming again. Will you be ready? Today as we exit out from our time in worship, we want to give you an opportunity to remember Christ in a special way. 
We practice something called the Lord's Supper. You may have heard it called communion. What this again, once again, just like baptism, this is a symbolic act. This will do nothing for you in terms of salvation. This will not save your soul. This will not impart to you some special grace. Apart from the saving relationship with Jesus Christ, this is just a little wafer and a bit of juice. It won't do anything but give you an extra calorie or two. But the power of this symbol is we are remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The baby who came after John in this next part of chapter 1, we're going to see next week, the promise of Jesus. Again, his name means God saves. He is salvation in the flesh. Salvation does not come through obedience to a list of rules and laws and demands. Salvation comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we exit out this morning, here's what we encourage you to do. We're going to sing one last song together. And we want to encourage you as you exit this morning, we're going to have four stations where you can come and partake of this Lord's Supper. There will be a little, little wafer, and you can take that and just dip that in the juice. Let that be a reminder to you of what Christmas is all about. I know we just came out of Black Friday and all the madness that goes along with that. Christmas is about Jesus, folks. If you miss that, you miss everything, no matter what you get under the tree this year. So get that. Understand that Christmas is about Jesus. He came to save you from your sins. The message of the gospel is look to him and be saved. Look at what Elizabeth said. We'll close here. Elizabeth said in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, taking away my reproach among people. Is that your testimony this morning? Do you remember that day when God looked upon you in your sin? and called you to faith in Jesus Christ and removed your reproach. That's what this table is all about. Remembering that God loved you so much that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life through Him. This is the gift of Christmas. So we encourage you today. I want to pray for us. I want to pray over us. As we exit today, I want to encourage you to remember your testimony. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Kent and I will be here lingering at the front. If you'd like to know what it means to know Christ as your Savior, to have this free gift of eternal life that He offers you through repentance and faith, if you'd like to know more about that this morning, we'll be lingering here at the front. We'd love to talk with you about that. This is why we exist. So church, we're going to share this last song together. As we walk through this song, whenever you're ready to exit, we're going to encourage you to move to one of these tables if you'll be taking the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Again, you don't have to be a member of our church. We do ask that you would be a, if you have your faith grounded in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer this morning, we invite you to this table. Remember Christ. Remember His sacrifice. Remember the purpose of Christmas. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, as we come to the close of our service today, we thank you for these gifts. Thank you for the gift that you gave to Zechariah. The sign of silence that was a reminder that you were about to speak powerfully to your people. The gift given to Elizabeth In her own name, a reminder that you are the God who keeps His promises. 
You have never once failed to fulfill one of your promises and you never will. Help us to trust you, to take you at your word, God. Thank you for John. For the grace of God wrapped up in his name that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves, that you have rescued us from sin and death, that you have shown us unmerited favor in all of its fullness. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who we remember at this table. As we share this final song, Lord, in worship to you, as we walk out these doors, taking of these elements of your supper. Prepare us for this Christmas season to be bold witnesses for you. Perhaps through one of these little little cards we'll receive as we walk out the door, God, may this be an invitation for someone that might be an invitation to more than just church. Maybe it'll be an invitation to eternal life. Lord, may we be serious about the gospel during these days as we look to Christ and we pray along with the saints over the last 2,000 years, come, Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to your return, Lord, even as we remember your life. Celebrate your sacrifice and fix our eyes upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name.